My name is Daniel, and I am so happy to be here. I, I just have to say, this is not in my notes. This is just genuine. Your guys' worship is unbelievable. I am so excited to come, and I, I just feel such a privilege to speak and preach with you, just so I can worship with you. You guys' worship is beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Give it up to them. Well, we are continuing on going through the book of James. We are in the last chapter, only a few more sermons left in this book. And so if you can do me a favor, turn to chapter five. And as you do that, in 1989, Stephen Covey released one of the most successful books of all time. It is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Anyone here have read it at all? Hand up. A few of you. I had to read it in middle school. Uh, But the the book is kind of self-explanatory in the title. It covers seven habits that people who are very effective that they put into practice in order to be effective. And the book goes on to sell 40 million copies, mega bestseller. Still, many people read it to this very day. And he outlines these seven habits. And the one that as I read it in middle school that was so attractive to me was point number two. His point number two is this. That if you want to be effective in life, any task that you take on, any journey that you start, you must begin with the end in mind. So for example, if you want to be an engineer, you don't just start doing life and figuring out your way to be an engineer. What you do is you say, well, I want to be a professional engineer. Well, I need to pass a licensing exam. Well, to do that, I need to know how to pass the exam. To do that, I got to go to college. And you keep working your way backwards to what is my next step right now? And it very much echoes the ethic in Proverbs 29, where it says, without vision, people perish. That if we don't have an insight to where we are headed to, often we will walk around aimlessly. And in James chapter 5, what he does is he invites us to think about the end to which we are going to. So if you will, with me in verse 7, read along. I'm reading out of the ESV. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Until the coming of the Lord. Highlight, underline that phrase. We're going to talk a lot about that. See how the farmer waits for their precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So last week, if you were with us, we talked about this idea that James is very much against greed. And he makes a pivot going from, let's talk about greed to now, let's talk about how we wait for the end. He starts with an imperative. He says, be patient. Notice it comes up several times. And he says, why should you be patient? In verse 7, he says, because of the coming of the Lord. Now, what he's talking about right there is when Jesus returns, When Jesus comes back to the earth, and when we talk about the coming of the Lord and Jesus returning, you probably think of some person in Times Square with a megaphone screaming at you to get ready because the end is near, or a person on the subway. And so whenever you hear that the the end is near, likely you are more fearful than excited. But notice, James uses it as a positive thing. He says, be patient, just wait, hold on a little bit longer. Why? Because the end is near. So notice he has a very positive association with it. And we're going to come back to this, but just notice this. And then notice he uses this analogy of agriculture. It's an agrarian society. And so he says, look, for people who want fruit, like farmers, they don't plant an apple tree and go back the next day expecting fruit. 
No, they know that when they plant seeds, they are beginning an endeavor that one day will enable them to collect fruit. So he says, be patient like them because the Lord is coming. In verse 8, he says, the Lord's coming is it's near. Or verse 7, it's, com- it's, it's coming. And then in verse 8, it is here. James keeps highlighting the Lord is returning. And then in verse 9, it can seem a little random, but it fits in context. He says, and while you're patient, while you're waiting for the Lord's return, don't grumble. Don't bicker with one another. Saying, as you are patient, as you are waiting, don't get peeved with people. Trust me, every time someone has to wait, someone gets entitled and frustrated and angry. I saw it. I took the ferry yesterday to Rockaway. So many people in line were impatient. So he says, while you're waiting, do not grumble. So we see here that James, three different times, highlights the coming of the Lord. And notice how interesting it is that James is using kind of an oxymoron, a paradox, if you will. He's saying, look, I need you to be patient. Okay, why should we, be, why should we wait? And you'd expect him to say, because in a long time, the Lord's going to come and, you know, in a hundred years, whatever it is. But he says, no, I need you to be patient right now because the end is near. You say, wait, if the end is near, shouldn't I hurry up? No, no, no. Be patient. Wait. In some sense, it says you need to wait because you also need to hurry. It's just interesting. It's a little bit interesting, right? And, and again, we will, I'm just highlighting. We'll come back to all of this. But what I want to propose to you is what I think James is doing is he's he inviting the church he's talking to, the Messianic community. He's inviting them into something that we would call an eternal perspective. Somebody say eternal with me. One, two, three. Eternal an eternal perspective. Let me define that for you. Andrea Lee, she says this, an eternal perspective is a way of seeing the pain, the pleasure, and purpose of our lives as a part of the redemptive story God is orchestrating. It is seen through the daily grind, the tumultuous highs, and the frequent lows to the destiny of, the destination of eternity. James is inviting us and the people he's writing to to having an eternal perspective on life. That he very much wants them to see things in light of eternity. He's saying, be patient because something great is about to come. If you could just zoom out of your current context, if you could just zoom out and see that all that God is doing, oh, you would be so happy to patiently wait. You would be expectant for this to come. Now, as I mentioned, we highlighted the idea that Jesus will return. And because for a lot of reasons, I think our understanding of Jesus' return is a, little bit, is a little bit askew, a little bit messed up, whether it's because of our interpretation of the book Revelation or the Left Behind books, which if you read them, I'm sure they've done some good and they are good. But a lot of the times when we think about what we would call maybe the apocalypse or something like that, Oftentimes, Hollywood and fiction has informed more of our understanding of the return of Christ than the Bible. Just for example, if you were to look up the Apocalypse in the Oxford Dictionary, this is what it reads. The Apocalypse is the complete final destruction of the world as described in the biblical book of Revelation. But what's interesting is if you read the book of Revelation, it's the exact opposite. It is not the end of the world. It is the restoration of the world. It is the time when Christ comes back to restore the earth from all pain, sin, death, and suffering. It is the time where he brings justice to an unjust land and joy to the mourning people. It is the time, as J.R. Tolkien describes, when everything sad will come untrue. And so James is trying to invite them into this reality. He says, one day you will no longer wait. 
you will no longer experience pain. Life will not be like this. You won't have to grumble with one another because when Christ returns, the earth will be restored like we have never seen it before. It'll be Eden, but even beyond that. And we will all be invited if we're in Christ. And so that's why James uses it, not as a fear tactic, but as a thing to get them excited. Be patient. It is coming, I promise. God will restore this world. So be patient, but be ready. So here's the application. We need to live in light of the end, which is really the beginning, but live in light of the end. I don't know your context, where you grew up, and how you understood the return of Christ. In my understanding, usually it's two groups. One group, it's mass hysteria, only talked about in a fear context. That when Christ returns, you better be ready. Or, kind of in my, this is where I grew up, we just don't talk about it. It's unsophisticated, you know, it might happen, it might not, who cares. We'll talk about just currently. But James says, rebuke both. You need to be expectant and excited. You need to get yourself ready. And so the way that we can be patient and practice what James is calling his people to in eternal perspective is by practicing the kingdom here and now. Because we believe we are going to the kingdom one day. And so we want to practice the things that we will do in the kingdom so that when that day comes, we're not confused. We know what we're doing. So for example, the reason that we come together as a body, as a church like this, and we sing songs is because one day we will be around the throne. It will not be me speaking, but we will be around the throne saying, glory, glory to the one on high. We are practicing what we will do for eternity. The reason that you give is because not that we just want your money. It is because we are going to a kingdom where one day your money will have no value. So therefore it should have no power over you today. Why do we fast? Christ says we fast to long for the return. So we will no longer be hungry again one day. We practice the life of the kingdom of God here and now because we believe we are going somewhere where that is all we will do. We practice the life here and now. We live in light of the end because it is a foretaste of the kingdom to come. And when you experience it, when you are fasting and when you are giving and when you are in fellowship and when you are reading your Bible and when you come to church and you get a little taste of it, oh, all you will want is more. You will wait expectantly saying, God, I want this to be the full reality. So we live in light of the end. Johnny Erickson Tata, who's a very famous Christian writer, she grew up in a very athletic family. And they used to ride horses and ski and, and very athletic. And one day while she was a teenager, she was in the Chesapeake Bay and she misjudged how shallow the water was. And she dove in and she hurt her spine and she became a quadriplegic. And she would go on to love the Lord. And she's still alive and she loves Jesus. She's been a great example of how to experience the grace of God in suffering. And there was this one reporter doing a story on her. And she said, do you want to do you, do you see my favorite thing to do? And he goes, of course. She goes, come with me to see the horses. And they go to the horses and they watch for hours. They watch these horses just being rid by other people. And the reporter says, you know, Joni, John, doesn't this like make you upset that you can't ride the horses and, and you aren't able to do this? Like, why do you do this all the time? And her answer was, so that I don't forget. So that I don't forget. Because for Johnny, there is a reality that one day she will ride horses again. That she will be in the kingdom of God where disability, heartache, and hardship, and sin, death, and suffering will be no more. And when you live a life practicing the kingdom of God here and now so that you don't forget 
God can do so much in you and through you. And so you need to ask the question, we need to ask the question, what do I need to forsake, create, or sustain in order so that I don't forget where I'm going? So we must live in light of the end. Read with me, starting in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's stop there. So James starts off by saying, hey, we need to be patient. And then he makes a new move. He says, I want you to be patient, but in suffering, what we might call steadfastness or endurance. And he brings up a couple examples of those who have suffered. He says, look at the prophets, one of the largest sections of your Old Testament, where essentially their whole ministry was God sent them to Israel and said, please repent, please repent. And they almost never did. And every time they felt failed and miserable and they would cry out to God, God, what are we doing? It feels like our whole ministry is worthless but yet they remained faithful and God sustained them. And then he uses the example of Job. And many of you might know the story, which Job was one of the most wealthiest characters in the entire Bible. He has everything, including faith in God, and God takes everything away to see if Job is faithful. And Job stays faithful. Job hurts, but he stays faithful and God restores him. Why? Because as verse 11 says, God is compassionate and merciful. So James, continuing on his theme of patience and endurance here, he is inviting the people he's writing to to have eternal perspective on suffering. I've been in ministry for a few years. And in my experience, the thing that causes people to walk away the most is when they experience suffering. It is the hardest thing to experience an unloving situation while worshiping a loving God. Sometimes it just gets too difficult. And I've had so many friends walk away because of suffering they experience. And they ask the question, how could God? Suffering is extremely, extremely difficult. But I think what James does here, when he says, remain steadfast, look at the people whom God sustained. He won't forget you. What is he reminding them of? He's saying, look, does belief in God remove your pain? Probably not. Does believing in God make it easy to go through pain? Probably not. But what James does do is he says, but if you realize that Christ really is coming back when you are suffering, not that it makes your suffering less or trivial, but it says one day life will no longer be like this. That when you suffer pain and heartache and everything wrong with the world, you are reminded one day it won't be like this anymore. That we follow a God who didn't just suffer himself, but he suffered himself so that one day we would not have to. Think about that. Just think about that. So every time you experience this life as it should not be, not as a way to make it small. Again, I'm not saying this takes it away, but as a way to cling to hope, to endure, to have steadfastness. Don't look at God and say, why would you do this to me? Look at God and say, I know what you're doing because one day it will no longer exist. You came to get rid of what is happening to me, not to enforce it. And James is saying, if you do that, if you have an eternal perspective on what God is doing, you will see that he is merciful and he is compassionate. When we think about this kind of perplexing thought of how do we wrestle with 
pain and suffering and even God's wrath. When we talk about the Lord is coming back, many of us say, what does that mean? Like, I don't know if I could follow a God who would do that. John Mark Comer says this, and I think it's really helpful. He says, when people say to me, I can't believe in a God of wrath, and you could put in a God of fill in the blank, I say, yes, you can. Every time you read about a child sold into prostitution by her family, every time you hear about yet another oil spill by a careless and greedy multinational corporation, every time you read about a rape or murder or genocide, you think to yourself, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And you're right. It is not how it's supposed to be. It is not God's will. Now, we must understand that. You see, every other religion, in my opinion, and their response to suffering is inadequate. Because only in Christianity do we believe that, yes, we suffer, and yes, we are victims of sin. But we believe we follow a God who said, you know what? I don't want them to experience that any longer, so I will take it on myself. So every time that we suffer, we invite in an opportunity to trust God and to endure. Not to blame God, but to trust him. Which is why James points back and says, look to Job, look to the prophets. Though they hated their circumstances, they knew that God was coming to do something far greater. And if you can tie in your suffering to the kingdom of God, it won't always get better, but it might give you just an ounce of hope that you need to get through it that God will not waste this opportunity, that one day it will be better. Joy Carson, who is, um, she's married to a very famous theologian named D.A. Carson. She um, had cancer at one point, and it was her and another friend in their church named Mary. They both had cancer around a similar time. And they called a prayer meeting to pray for them. About 300 people show up at this prayer meeting, and they all begin to pray. Someone gets up and says, Lord, please heal them. Please heal them. Someone gets up and says, Lord, you must. You said you would, and now you have to. Next person gets up. God, if you're good, this is the only way I'll believe. And slowly but surely, people got more and more, God, you have to heal her right now. Joy gets up there, the one with cancer, and says, let me pray to the group. She said, dear Heavenly Father, oh, it would be so, we would be so grateful if you would heal us. We know that you can do it, but if it is not your will, teach us to die well. Give us courage, the eyes of faith, a heritage for our family, great confidence in Christ, anticipation of the glory yet to come. Is it wrong to pray for healing? Absolutely not. Is death an injustice? 100%. But what Joy gets right is that she zooms out and has an eternal perspective on suffering. She realizes either way she will be healed. She might be healed in this life, but she will for sure be healed in the next life. This is why one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is the story of the paralytic. Jesus is at a house church and it is packed to the brim. And these friends, they have a friend who's paralyzed and they want to bring him to Jesus. It's so packed in the house, they have to tear the roof open, lower him down. Jesus loves it. Jesus loves the faith of his friends. And they say, Jesus, we have a paralytic friend. Please heal him. And he goes, you got it. Your sins are forgiven. He's not walking. No, no, I heard you. His sins are forgiven. Do you see in that moment, Jesus healed him. 
Do you see in that moment, because Jesus said your sins are forgiven, one day that person would walk again in glory. That Jesus tests his friends, how much do you see all that I am doing? Because if you really believe in what I'm doing, you would realize your friend is healed. Now Jesus goes on to heal him and he walks home, and that's a great part. But Jesus is masterful in helping us see if you have an eternal perspective on suffering, you will realize we will all be healed one day. And that deeply changes how you view suffering. Doesn't make it better, doesn't take it away, but it might give you the ounce of hope you need to get through it. So our prayer when we suffer is that, God, would you help me to endure? Would you help me to remain steadfast? I want to get through this on the other end and still follow you and not just follow you. I want to be closer to you. When we have an eternal perspective on suffering, it changes how we interact with suffering. Go with me now to verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So this is, it might feel a little bit random, but I promise it relates. So James starts off, he says, above all, but you can kind of translate that as finally or in conclusion. And he starts to say, in regards to your speech. Now, James, if you've read the book in its entirety, he's very concerned with how you use your mouth to build up the kingdom of God. He's very concerned with it. And he's saying, we go from learn to be patient, learn to endure, and now learn how to speak in light of the kingdom of God. In light of all this reality, how should you speak? And many people use this part, like this is very famous. It echoes one of Jesus' teachings. Uh, Many people use it as a a teaching on indecisiveness, right? It's like after church, your friends ask you to go to dinner and you're like, oh, I don't know. And then you hit them with the old reliable of I'll let you know, which is no with love, right? This is not what this is about. What it's about is this idea of using God's name in vain where people are invoking God's name to get what they want, an oath. Instead, James says, hey, your life in light of eternity should be so full of integrity that when you say yes and when you say no, you have no need to bring God's name into it. You don't need to say, this is God's will for my life. It is. No, you are so filled with integrity. When you say yes or when you say no, people say, they mean it. They've done their due diligence. They've asked their community. They brought this before the Lord. They really mean it. That when you invoke God's name to get what you want, that is not great. James says, again, referencing the coming of Jesus, the judge is right there. You will be judged. You don't want to be condemned. James invites us to have an eternal perspective on our actions. And so the way this plays out when it comes to letting your yes be a yes and your no be a no is honestly how we make decisions as believers. I have, just for an example, I have lived in the two most transient cities in America. I lived in San Francisco area and now in New York. And this is no shame, all love. I am puzzled by how many people up and move away in a weekend because they had one conversation on a Saturday evening. God's, God's will, trump card, God's will. You can't say anything. It's what he wants. The, the, the lack of consideration of saying, what would my community feel if I left? Of course I would gain if I went somewhere else. But how this might be perceived on my community? What do my pastors think? What does my community group think? What do people in my life affirm and not affirm? 
Now, is that a, is that a fail-safe? Is that going to work 100% of the time? No. But in, as the people of God, we invite others into our lives. We believe our lives are not our own. And so James here is saying, look, we want to be people of integrity. We want to invite people in on what we do. So when we do say yes, people don't question it. Other things that we do, I think of, I am so guilty of this one. Again, this, I'm not the doctor. I'm the patient in this issue. One of my things that I always do is I pray about it. Do you guys ever pray about it? I do the thing where, so, well, Kyle and I both like to run and Colette. We, we're runners, you know? So running shoes tend to be expensive sometimes, you know? And so I asked my wife, can I have these running shoes? And she says something like no, right? <laughs> and I say, but, you know, my mom, for my birthday, she gave me a couple bucks. Can I spend them? Yeah. Okay, well, you know, it's a lot of money. Why don't you pray about it? Lord, I want these shoes. Amen. Bye, easiest prayer of my life. James says, no, we want to be people of integrity. And when we make decisions, but pretending like they're gods, we will face judgment. We don't invoke God's name to get what we want. We don't invoke God's name to get what we want. Rather, we are people of integrity. When we make decisions, they are not just for us, but we believe as God is our witness, it is best for those involved in my life. Our yes will be a yes, and our no will be a no. So now that we've worked our way through the passage, what I want you to see is just how paradoxical this passage is. That James says you need to be patient. Why? Because the return is imminent. That you need to endure suffering. Why? Because one day there will be none. That you, may, you need to make decisions for today well because of your life tomorrow. James is inviting you to live the Christian life of paradox. That really, if you read the Gospels and you read Jesus, I mean, even as we sang, how do we become white as snow? By the red blood of Jesus. Many times the Christian life is a beautiful paradox. And the gospel, in some way, is a paradox. That the way that you can save yourself is to realize that you can't. That your righteousness must lessen and it must become Christ. That your payment was paid not by you, but by somebody else. That while Christ, when he said, I am with you till the end of the age, what did he do? He up and left. But yet he is always present. And that Christ is here, but he's also coming back. This is the paradox of faith. And when we embrace it, we will realize that our life is a paradox, right? That Christ has come, and he is coming again. And we live right in the middle. And we live in light of what he has done, and we live in light of what he will do. In the Puritan book of prayer called The Valley of Vision, the opening prayer, the very first page, is called The Prayer of Paradox. And it covers very similar stuff to what James is getting at. I just want to read it over you. May this be the prayer of your life. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul. 
that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. All of us right now, because Christ has not come, we are in a valley. But if we take what James says seriously and we begin to have an eternal perspective, it will give you a vision like you have never seen. Your faith will become more real and more helpful than ever before. And the prayer for us as the people of God is that when that day comes, when Christ does return, we don't forget. We don't forget all the things that we did in order to get ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, where would we be without you, God? God, we need to be reminded of just how good you have been to us. That you have given us yourself on the cross in order to have a life with you. God, we ask this week for Crossroads Church, God, that you would, in the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the ability to see things how you see them with an eternal perspective. Let us cling to you. Let us realize all of your goodness and all of the plans that you have in our pain and our suffering. And God, and may we be reminded that you have come and you're coming again. And would we orient our life in that way? We give you our lives. We trust you. We love you. It's your name that we pray. Amen.